Hello everyone, I'm Frederick Eichen, and today I'm joined by Evan Tindell, the co-founder and chief investment officer of Byream Capital. I've been enjoying Evan's letters and his uh, the, the research he shares on his Twitter account and on Byream's website, and I thought it was time for a conversation. So today we're going to dive into Evan's background as a poker player before getting into investing, the way he looks at biases and how he tries to take advantage of them, and we'll dig into some of the investments that he's involved in, as well as navigating, um, as a Maori guy, the 2021 sort of growth bubble. And as always, that none of this is investment advice. Everything expressed on the pod is just my and, and Evan's opinion. Do your own research. Don't trade on anything that we're talking about here. And check out some of his some of his writings. I'm going to attach it to the Substack as well. And with that, let's go. Evan, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, this is uh, I've been looking forward to this since we spoke last week. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, and I wanted to start out with something that we that we touched on, and that's a little bit that's definitely interesting about your background, which is you started off in poker, and I saw you mention in an interview that you you sort of picked up literature about Buffett and Graham, and you sort of found overlap between that and and what you're reading about uh, the strategies in poker. And I I thought let's just start there and sort of. How did that transition occur and, and what did you learn? Sure, yeah. So I guess my interpretation of what um, Graham and Dodd and then later Buffett and Munger did for investing was they they took what was essentially just like random gambling back in, you know, the 1800s, early 1900s. And they tried to create a framework for how to how to think about the endeavor in a in a rational way, like saying, okay, like from first principles, like what are we doing here? Like, okay, we're buying stakes in companies. Okay, what are they worth? Okay, how can we do that better? You know, let's look for things that are undervalued. Uh, whereas before, I mean, you had bucket, you had all that. I mean, and of course, this is, still gets done today by a lot of people, but. Um, but, you know, before that time, you just the vast majority or maybe almost all of the participants were just essentially doing random gambling and trying to read the tea leaves of what management was going to say or do. Um, and, you know, hopefully they were collecting some dividends along the way. But so it, it uh, that's that's kind of my view on what um, they did for the in, investing uh world and the reason why that that spoke to me as a poker player was there's a very similar thing that happened uh, in the poker world which was this guy david sklansky came out with a book called the theory of poker and of course there had been other good poker players that had come before and and sklansky actually wasn't a particularly good player in the scheme of like the best players of all time but what he did was he he wrote a book that broke down how to properly think about the game like okay what are we doing here we are making bets based on our hand based on the the probable hands that the other player can have based on um the statistics about what cards can come in the future based on um you know our our estimates of how often the other person might be bluffing uh how much we can win later on in the hand and all of like the those are kind of like the fundamentals of a poker hand. And 
so when I was playing professional poker, I was sort of well-versed in that world of, you know, essentially all I spent my time doing was trying to apply these, this like sort of rational framework to what I saw as a largely random, well, what I saw uh, to a world of, of people who were just wildly speculating and gambling. And so uh, when I read, when I first read Graham and Dodd uh, and, uh, and, and Buffett, I saw a lot of overlap there because it, it just, it just immediately spoke to me and I said, I, and I said, oh, this is just another place where most people are kind of gambling in a unstructured way. And mm-hmm. here's a methodology for uh, trying to improve on that. Right. Now, having said that, um, and I have some some friends who kind of share a similar background in in being, whether it's poker or other games. Um, but it strikes me, obviously, you deal with the stock market or any large market, right? It's sort of much more complex. You don't really know who's sitting across from you. You know your own hand, but it's... Um, I, I always wonder, like, what kind of lessons can you actually take from, like, a very clearly defined game where you can sort of try to read the other player, you can sort of study their... Uh, their emotions, their their behavior to some extent. How do you think about kind of the the actual lessons that are sort of portable? Yeah, for I mean, you as the, an the one the one of the reasons I think poker is probably a better game for bringing lessons to the investing world as opposed to something like chess or um, other other games where you have all the information in front of you is it's also a game of incomplete information. So, I mean, the the scale of the incompleteness in the investing world is obviously a different, you know, it's like an order of magnitude larger, like all the things that you don't know in, um, in, in the investing world. But I think what poker teaches you is, um, is, is how to be, it's just how to think rationally in the face of, of that, incomplete information so you always have to be um a you always have to be updating your model of what's going on based on the new information um you know whereas in in chess i mean you you always know exactly what's going on the pieces are fixed on the board right um in poker you don't really know you never really know what's going on um and and one 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 thing that i i i think is interesting to to take away from poker is you can never actually be totally sure if you had the right strategy at all, you know, because just because you want a hand, there's just so many ways to get, to get, to get lucky in poker. Like sometimes you get lucky where literally you were losing and then the card came out that like made your hand or you were winning, but usually in that same situation, you would be losing (laughs) if that makes sense. Um, and so you have to be, I just think you have to be very humble about, um, even in, even in a, even in a hand, you have to be humble about whether you're winning or losing and always try to update that information. And over time, and over time as well, you have to kind of, you always have to be thinking about trying to put yourself in, in the, in the position to win, like in, in good situations. Um, like if you get too cocky as a poker player and like, no matter how good you are as a poker player, if you just continually um play at a table at tables if you just play at any table and you just keep moving up the ranks eventually you'll end up in um 
Doyle's room at the Bellagio, which is like the really high roller room, and you'll be playing against Phil Ivy and these other guys, and you're gonna get your ass kicked, right? So I, I think you also have to be. Um, there's also an element of uh, well, again, it, it's just also like humility again in terms of like your your own. If you get a little bit too big for your britches, you'll get knocked down quickly, um, and and that's actually a lesson that you probably learn faster in poker than you learn in investing because because just because of just because of what we said earlier where there's just so many more unknowns in investing that um you you might be able to get away with being uh going uh, you know far afield from your circle of competence for like years even if they're the right tailwind is behind you whereas in poker if you're at the wrong table you'll uh usually find out quicker than that <laughs> right yeah, I mean, it strikes me sort of when I uh, when I read through some of your letters, right? You sort of have this emphasis on on biases, and um, obviously that's I would say it's a little bit on vogue for people to to talk about that. But when you sort of talk about okay, I want to pick the right table, that's almost like I want to pick the right opponent, and I maybe want to pick an opponent that's um, sort of affected by a bias or by something, something else. Right. So, um, yeah, that's, I think that's a, that's similar. I mean, it's kind of stems from my realization or, I mean, I don't know if it's, I don't want to like claim that it's like my own epiphany or whatever, but I mean, when the way, the way to win at any game, I mean, unless you're playing by yourself, but that, um, like any, any game with other people requires you to, it requires you to outplay them somehow, right? I mean, unless you're just getting lucky. But over time, if you're going to outplay them over time, you have to capitalize on their mistakes, essentially. And it's that's true in poker. And it's it, it's a little bit more clear in poker, right? Because you're sitting right across the table from someone. So you're like, you can just see that they're, they're calling preflop with like 3-7 offsuit. And you just have to punish it by waiting till you have pocket tens and then raising a lot before the flop, you know? Um, so it, it's a little bit more clear in poker, like what exactly you're punishing, but obviously in investing, um, it's people don't think about this really, but like any alpha that you're, that you are generating relative to the overall market is coming out of someone else's like negative alpha doesn't mean they're gonna have negative returns right but like in some total like all of the stocks have zero alpha right like just overall so if if you you know if you when you're buying that stock from someone you're implicitly making a bet that they they made a mistake um and you know the people talk about um some people love to talk about like oh different time horizons and whatnot but I, I personally, I think that's mostly, um, I think it's mostly just people covering up for the fact that they, they are paying a really high price and, and they're claiming they're, they're, they're just paying a premium price and they're claiming that they have a long enough time horizon to not lose money somehow. Um, but for the most part, when you're buying a stock, it's a, it's a little bit of an arrogant act because you're saying this other person who probably also is a professional, just like, you know, based on the weighted dollars of, of money that's in the stock market is, is making a mistake. Um, and so, yeah, I, 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 with that as like the first principle, whenever I'm investing in a company, I try to think about, I try to figure out what the mistake might be that the other, that the person who's selling it is making. And sometimes that comes from 
you know, news stories or like obvious action in the stock. Like, um, you know, like if you're buying Facebook today, there's a couple obvious stories about like why the stock is not doing so well. And so, you know, you, you can probably, you know, uh, have a pretty good idea of what other person might be wrong about. But, you know, um, with other stocks, it's 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 tougher. Um, and, you know, but but that's yeah, that's kind of how I think about it. Got it. And so the way I, I really came around to this to this conversation is like you, you wrote a couple of pieces and we'll get back into more of these uh, of devices. But like I just wanted to highlight in three of your letters sort of mid um, I want to say late 2020 to mid of last year, you had like three consecutive pieces that was like, OK, we're in a bubble. You know, this is how it's playing out. You had this this cool framework, the transcenders, the contenders, the pretenders and the pump and dumpers. I was like, OK, this is interesting. <laughs> and it's also you you went out a little bit on a limb, I think, because obviously um, as long as you're in a bubble, right, the majority like the, the herd or the, um, the mainstream opinion is like, actually, we're not. And like this is going to, you know, there's some rationality underlying this. Maybe it's a little bit excessive. But so I'm, I'm curious what your thought process was at the time to sort of look at this kind of collective mistake and sort of, you know, putting that out there and how you think about this, this framework and how it translated into your portfolio. Yeah. I mean, the, the first thing is that as, as someone who tends to gravitate towards stocks that are cheaper than the market, obviously for a long time, we've been watching other types of stocks do really well. <laughs> um, now we we managed to have pretty good performance all, along the way, so it was okay. But um, you know we were not on. We were definitely aware of the type of stocks that um, you know have been doing well. And uh, you know one of the things we we do is um, you know we'll we'll look at. I mean we look at all kinds of things, but one of the things we do is we do some some quantitative analysis on um, you know just the types of stocks that are doing well, how, what's value doing relative to growth, you know, and what we saw was the, the, the spread between the valuations of value and, and, and I don't want to say even, I don't even want to like value and growth is a little bit of a silly, like as Buffett says, it's kind of a silly distinction, but the, the most, the most expensive stocks relative to their current results and the, and the cheapest stocks, um, the spread between the valuations were just at a you know at, at an all-time high um and it didn't really um i think even if you look on there's a lot of discussion about well there's just different industries today and blah 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 but even if you looked on a sort of an industry neutral basis uh what you saw was the spread between the companies that had for whatever reason caught the markets um you know, caught, caught, caught a tailwind in the market, the spread was at an all time high. So it just, it, it, um, you know, we've been watching it for a while. And then in like late 2020 with, uh, with, you know, post the post COVID boom in those type of stocks, it just became clear to us that it was kind of nearing the, I mean, you can never say it's near the end, but it was, it was just so extreme. Um, like I, I'm pull a chart. I know I'm not going to be able to show you a chart, but like, I mean, literally the, the spread was as big as it was in the, the blow off top in like 99, 2000. And I mean that, that top, you know, you, maybe you can 
you can draw maybe potentially draw too many parallels to th for things like that um but you know that only last that blow off top lasted like what like a year and a half um and then we start, started to see then you then you throw on top of it like all of the um i think we caught yeah the, the bottom rung we called the um the contenders the 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 pretenders and the i forget what the i forget what the worst the pump and dump the pumper dumps yeah so that so, i mean so it was like the it, it was like the great stocks like the fang stocks then the sort of i don't know sass you know, like high quality maybe overvalued but like high quality and then it sort of goes down the ladder to like the obvious hypes and and, and that frauds, I, i'd I say that's really where i decided to like personally we hadn't had um a, a large short book before that um i had shorted at my old firm but at, at byream we had only had a couple short positions on at a time never like a significant part of our net asset value um and at that point i just said like once we saw the spac boom and and then like the meme stock bubble that was when it became really clear to us like you can you can argue like when you know when einhorn came out in 2015 or 2013 or whatever and was like okay there's all these bubble stocks i looked at it and i was like this is just too hard like okay maybe amazon's overvalued i don't know it's not the type of stock that i want to invest in uh, at that valuation at that time which of course was a mistake but it was just too hard to to do but i mean but then, but then, I mean, you're talking about GameStop in Q one of last year. That is something where like you can plant a flag and be like, "This is this is this is too crazy. This will not last forever." It, it has lasted what I would have said was forever. <laughs> I mean, you know, like it definitely um, a lot of some some of the stuff has gone on longer than I expected, um, but. Yeah, look, I mean, this quarter seems like this quarter and the end of last quarter seems like some of that stuff is starting to unwind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it struck me that, yes, there are those charts around like valuation spreads and, and kind of the, the obvious and egregious examples. But I was always curious, like, what do you do with that? Because you can still be early, like there's no obvious indication for GameStop being a great example for like, OK, you could short this at any point on the way up and still get run over because once you're detached from valuation or rationality it's like there's no there's no obvious at least to me obvious way to like predict how it's going to end up or when it's going to turn and uh, yeah i mean i, th I don't I, know I, what your take is I, I think there's always the risk of um i mean with any short position you have the risk of being too early uh, and the last thing you want to do is have a short where you get stopped out because it gets too big and you can't take the losses and you don't want to risk. I mean, certainly like none of us, none of the long short people are really trying to risk client significant amounts of client capital. Like you're trying to make some alpha and protect against a large decline in the market. That's what you're trying to do in, in my opinion. Um, and so, I mean, for us, it, 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 the first thing is position sizing. Like, any we don't we're not going to start a, a a short at more than like a two percent position if it goes against us it might get a little bit bigger but that's you know but we never want to be we never want to be from day one like worried about what direction the stock goes because yeah clearly i mean the path of gamestop from when it first got to 150 for, is going to be a random walk for a while like, yes, it will end up lower in a few years, but I mean, clearly it's going to be a random walk. So you just, yeah, you can't, you can't base your whole investment strategy around, um, around it going straight down. So, but it's, it's very different. I mean, there's no, there's no magic bullet. I mean, I think, I, I do think though that a lot of people, 
because of so many because of how many people kind of got carried out on their sword on the short side over over the years um and einhorn was kind of like the most vocal one but i'm you know there were definitely others people started saying like never short for on valuation um and but if you look at if you look at like Chanos, for example, he he has given a presentation where he talks about like all the all the things to short, all like all like the things he looks for, and it goes from you know value. He, he looks sometimes he shorts value traps, you know, where it's like, uh, you know, that the current results are just not indicative of what it's going to be in the future, and then, and then he also in one of his presentations talks about selling selling a dollar for two dollars. You know, which is just, it's nothing more than, it's nothing more than uh, a, a valuation bet. And like, yes, there's a one in a million chance that GameStop can go to the moon. But as, as, as Chano says, I see a lot more stocks trading at zero than infinity. <laughs> so, um, strikes me as we'll, we'll see some of that happening. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, years. so you just have to do, you just have to position size. And you also, in that case, you also have to be, um, a little bit humble like if you if it's a two percent position and you know and it double and it like you know if, if it's two percent position it triples and it goes to six percent then you just have to say i was wrong on this one and you know um and you, you you probably have to take a loss and uh and and maybe you keep the position at like a two or three percent position but um you know you 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 eat some loss there so because uh, you don't want it to obviously you don't want to lose like 10 percent of your client capital on one position um which obviously some people did things like that with uh um with the whole gamestop saga but so i think yeah i think position sizing is key but easier said than done honestly yeah i mean it, it strikes me right so we're at a kind of half a year removed from that uh, the piece that you wrote like apex of a bubble and you mentioned sort of okay inflation is coming so it's i i got the sense that you're like this this thing is now clearly sort of coming coming to an end and uh, i think so far that 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 seems about right I'm, I'm curious how you think about your portfolio now and like where you think you are like are you still seeing this as like a longer term on unwind and like and where do you find like yeah like, has that changed or like so I, for we still have roughly the same a sort of similar portfolio on the long side uh in terms of we still think that it's you know the the sort of value cycle is probably um is probably going to be measured in like multiple years rather than quarters and I mean that's that's how it's gone historically. Like it, you know the the after after the tech crash, it was you know you had a really good run from like two thousand two to two thousand seven um, for cheaper stocks, and you know a lot of that a lot of that gain was in the first couple of years on a, especially on a relative basis. But it still made sense to kind of hold on to the to the value stuff, uh, the cheaper stocks. Um, but I mean some 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 of the stuff. I, I'm sort of trying to mentally prepare for the day when there's when there I might need to make um a sort of larger pivot to stuff that's a little bit uh you know growthier. Like I think and I think last week we talked about how we've almost it's so rare that you see someone show up at a part of the cycle with 
um, a certain type of portfolio and then switch when the cycle gets long in the tooth and those type of stocks are no longer, you know, sanely valued. Like no growth, like, like imagine if Kathy would, like what a legend she would be if she had said, you know what, these stocks, like if she had just taken a step back and like rationally thought about the stocks, like what if she had just, the problem is with Kathy Wood, like all her stuff is just so thematic that it would be like almost like against her mandate to do that. Um, but if she was a more traditional hedge fund manager, I mean, she would have been legendary if she had had switched in, um, you know, early 2021 or something into a, a slightly, even a, even a slightly different portfolio than the kind of hyper growth stuff that she has. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm trying to stay, I'm I'm a big believer in um you know the market going in cycles and it it and and I'm I'm also sort of a believer that the kind of boring businesses that that like traditional value investors like to buy should be the most fertile ground for um to look for investments because they just there's just the type of stocks that don't excite people so they should naturally have they should naturally have like less interest from from you know to, uh, in terms of um you know investor interest and therefore a lower price and a higher return but i mean the day may very well come when um you know the i i would i actually am looking forward to the day not looking forward to the day but like you know when when i start i'm tremendously preparing myself for the day when i have to start like looking at the type of things that maybe not kathy wood owns but um, you know, like a tiger global or, you know, those type of names, because it, it is possible for that, for the cycle to go too far in that direction as well, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's funny that these, these pivots are, are really difficult because you sort of bought into and, and, and represented yourself in, in, in a bad case as like, I'm, I'm the manager who does X, Y, Z well. And like, um, your LPs almost don't necessarily want you to, um, I mean, there, there's, there's certainly situations where like, there's kind of constraints to to just stepping out of that but it also reminded me of what you said about poker which is like you have very quick feedback loops in poker right and or, or in any game in, in games other than the stock market versus you know if a regime goes on for several years and like you're being rewarded for one behavior year after year and everybody around you is like nope this is the right thing to do and you can never stray from that and every time somebody strays they're like nope yeah and not only are your own investor you know your lps or uh, your clients kind of cheering you on along the way and not only are are their i mean like if you have an institutional investors right their boards and things are saying oh you invested you guys were so smart you invested in that growth uh fund and blah 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 um you also have all the naysayers being proven wrong which may even be like a stronger impact right like not only are um people you know your own your people that uh are on your side kind of cheering you along but then people are you know like kathy wood probably in 2019 2018 people said her stocks were overvalued right and then and but then they did great so um so that just even i feel like that trains you even more uh towards kind of sticking with your um your 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 strategy having said that looking at at, at how you've done i don't i don't think you were you're proven wrong in, in value over the last few years. So I'm curious how you um, 
where you did find good ideas in, in how the, the framework of biases sort of manifest itself in the, in the portfolio and the different ideas. Like how do you, like it's, it's one thing to say, okay, we know these cognitive biases exist. And it's another thing to say, okay, I'm going to sort of integrate this into my idea generation and I'm going to actively look for whether or not this is sort of something that really, um, you know, makes this an interesting investment. Like how do you, how do you go about marrying that, that conceptual framework? Yeah, so I think it, it kind of depends on the specific bias that we're that we're talking about. Um, but I have a, a couple different ways that I like for for each bias, I sort of have a different way that I try to find ideas that might fit that theme. So uh, there's one. I mean, the most common the most common bias that you see. And it almost has um, a portion of this is almost in every other bias. It, so um, is something called availability bias, like uh, Kahneman and Tversky. I, I think they they called it like what you see is all there is. Um, and so what I give as like the kind of the canonical example of that is um, is Facebook in in, in late in late twenty eighteen where um, there were all these stories about the, the Cambridge Analytical scandal. And so people were, um, you know, obviously selling the stock because they worried about the, I mean, maybe some people worried about the regulatory impact, but I mean, I think most people were worried about the actual, the actual business. Like, are people going to leave Facebook or Instagram or whatever? And, and that seemed very scary. Um, but, it, so the availability bias is we look the way we look for that is stocks that have done poorly and where there's some um you know kind of obvious like newsworthy story about why and you know maybe it's a company that's going through a um you know some type of like legal or regulatory action or um you know there's some some reputational thing that happens i mean that's one reason i i i really like i I have enjoyed digging into some of these Chinese stocks is because there's an obvious story about why um, the stocks are falling, having to do with the regulation of the of the government. And it's not it's not like directly related to the business doing poorly. And so um, and so that's the kind so that those are the kind of stories where I, I say, OK, um, there's this story about why people are selling the stock. And then a second trigger is like, OK, wait, it's not directly related to the business let me go do some research to try to figure out if it will end up affecting the business in the long term. Um, and if it's not, if it doesn't affect the business in the long term, and I think the stock is undervalued, then it's a, it seems like a great, a great time to buy. And I mean, th those, those, you know, the situations are obviously very rare. Um, like it's most of the time, the problems that the market sees are like roughly correct. And I mean, usually they just have to do with the business, right? Like Foot Locker was down 30% the other day or whatever, because Nike is, is moving some of their stuff away from their stores. Like, okay, the stock was down a lot, but I mean, the, the, the story is very core to the, the business itself. But like with Facebook and the Cambridge Analytical scandal, if you, if you just researched it for a few days, honestly, you would, you would realize that like half of Americans don't even know that Facebook owned Instagram and the vast majority of the business is 
or the, or the vast majority of the growth um, is either in Europe or in Africa or in Asia. And so, I mean, how is a, a like a kind of a U.S. political thing really going to impact a Instagram user in France? Like, I don't think I just it, it just was never going to. Um, so that that's that's one example. Another example I like to give um, that has kind of like an obvious way to look for it is. And this is a little bit of a tongue twister. It's the, the bias, we call it representativeness bias. Um, and I'm not even totally sure if that's a real word, but that's, that's, that's what I call it. But it's, it's just another example of what you see is all there is. It's where, it's where a stock is maybe in a particular industry and it either, uh, it either isn't really in that industry. If you look at like where the economic uh, benefits are and like where, where the real economics of the business lie, or it, for some reason, whether it's the business model, the size of the business or something um, separates that company from all the other ones in the, in the industry and, and therefore it deserves a different valuation. Um, so, for example, um, Apple for a long time traded at six, seven times earnings, eight times earnings. And it's because Apple is the only company, and this is my opinion, but I think most people kind of felt this way. Apple's the only company that sold a, a piece of hardware that was integrated with the software. And so it was, you know, historically followed by mostly hardware analysts like you know back in the day it was a it was a computer company so their sales were driven by uh you know largely like replacement cycles for pcs before the ipod um but then eventually i mean i would i would argue today you know 80 to 90 percent maybe 99 percent of the value of the company is in the software right it's in the stickiness of the ios platform it's in it's in the fact that like, if you told my mom, she couldn't FaceTime me. Like it, she would just put, if you gave my mom an Android phone, she would just put it right in the trash. I mean, how it like, how, how, <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't be that hard for her to download Hangouts or whatever, you know, Google meet or whatever they want you to use these days. But it would literally, I mean, it would go right in the trash. She would be like, no, 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 I would want, I would like to pay a thousand dollars and be able to FaceTime my son and see my grandkids now, please. Um, <laughs> I and so yeah, yeah. It, I, I mean, I'm an Android user, so I will say there's there's alternatives, but I get yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, um, it's 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 yeah, you you right, and and but but even for Android, right? Like, how when did you? How long have you had Android? Um, pretty much the entire. I mean, I've always right. kind of been a Samsung, but but it's it's WhatsApp though. Like, so you're back to like another platform. But yeah, yeah. But to, what, to what, 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 point is like you're kind of misclassified. Like, is that how you think? Yeah, about but well, just really quickly with Android, like. But yeah. you, but the reason you probably had different brands of phones, but you, but you're, but you're, um, you know, but you, you're, you value using the Android software. Like you, like back in the day, you valued like having the widgets and like all the other stuff that Android could do. Um, and like, it's like a known thing that software is a sticky business in general. But so I think with, with Apple, there was this kind of like mind, um, this, like this trick that people did where, because it's software sold in a hardware package, they classify and like the transaction is physically it's done with the hardware. Like here is my phone, um, and there was some aspects of terms of like replace, replacement cycle and whatnot that had that were more similar to hardware. But the margins were software. That's the thing. The margins and the stickiness of the customers were software, 
not like TVs. They were software. Um, and, and so people valued it like a hardware company. And we were like, this is silly. This is a software company. Um, I mean, it's going to be a little more cyclical than like Salesforce because it's not under, it's not like subscription contracts most at that time. Um, and so we thought that it was that we considered that to be, um, representativeness bias because it's like, it looks like Apple looked like it had the characteristics that were representative of a hardware company. But really, if you look deeper, it was, um, it was a software company. Got it. And how do you think th there's a company uh, Bolo Ray, I yeah. think, which you've been sort of invested in or, or followed for for quite a while, which is sort of, to me, it looked like classic kind of. There's there's an owner operator, sort of the the sum of the parts idea and conglomerate kind of discount. And I'm curious. Um, I mean, I've, I'm not sure that it's a flashy stock, but certainly there's there's other kind of professionals who who follow it and invest it. So right. I'm curious how you think about any biases there, and also since it's sort of unfolding, what do you think is like the end game? Um, for for that yeah so i mean what we th what we thought was the 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 bias with uh with bolore was the sort of the, the the share count issue um i don't know if you kind of follow that but yeah so if you the reported share count is i believe 2.9 or 8 billion or something but um if you tally up all of the cross holdings that they have with other either publicly listed or privately listed entities that that Bolare owns that then own shares of things that own shares of Bolare. Um it, it's just, it's called like the Breton pulley system, uh, which is like how these uh, a lot of European companies ended up controlling much larger entities with with smaller amounts of capital because it's like when you think about it, if you have 51% of X and that owns 51% of Y and 51, if you know, you keep going 51% and you can own something that's much larger than, um, than what you started off with. But, but, it, but so the, 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 the share count was always listed at like 2.9 billion, I think. And, um, and if you actually looked at what they, um, all of the cross holdings, you would get to basically a number that's half of that. Um, and so for me, it was just another example of essentially availability bias where people were just looking at the, I mean, it seemed like, and it, it seemed, it also, it wasn't just that, but it, it, it transferred through to the price of the stock seemingly. Like it wasn't like, oh, then it's like a 10% discount. It's like, it's like, no, no, no. If you, if you change the share count to the proper share count, it's like a 60%. Like, I think right now we did a blog post where we think it's worth like, 12 plus euros a share and it's at four something um so that's like much bigger than the typical like 10 to 20 percent conglomerate discount um and so that's kind of what got us interested actually it was a post by a short seller muddy waters his first i think it was his first ever like long uh analysis on a stock where he um kind of went through the share count issue uh back in like 2015 um that kind of got us interested we didn't end up we didn't end up investing for a few years but um and yeah as far as where it's going to go now i mean it, it they recently had a bid um for the uh so they have they they own they operate port they do a couple different things they're um a large owner of universal music group uh, which people you know one of the big three music labels which i'm sure people are aware of um and then they have a freight forwarding business 
um, which is like a logistics operator, customs, shipping, you know, making sure people get spots on planes and boats to get their goods to different markets across the world. And then they also own uh, a bunch of, I think, a couple dozen ports in Africa where they basically get uh, a fee for every container ship uh, that that goes into those ports. And so they they recently got a bid for I forget what the exact number is on the on the order of like five billion euros, like which is like which is like twenty times EBIT for that um for that business. And yeah, if you kind of if you kind of push that if you kind of push that through to the rest of the um operations, it um it, it looks like it should be worth at least twelve euros per share. I mean that's before any conglomerate discount, but the stock's trading at four something. So, um, and yes, yeah, it's, it's it's a very interesting situation because they still own some of Vivendi. Um, they have this position at Universal Music Group, and it's it's not clear it's not clear what they're going to do with um, with the money that they get from that uh, that sale. Uh, I mean, I think there's there's some speculation. Um, that the patriarch uh, uh, Vincent Bolloré uh, will, you know, he he's in the process of kind of stepping back from the business and giving it to um, some of his kids and other people uh, that he's hired. And I think there was some there was some speculation that you know before he like really let go completely, he would try to consolidate everything and remove this kind of share count, you know, kind of clean up all these different. Um, holding companies. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see if that happens. Obviously, if that did, that would kind of make a little bit clearer the discount that's involved. Um, but yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see what he does with this, this giant slug of cash. that's like 5 billion or whatever he's going to get, um, from the sale of the ports business, because if he does, I mean, maybe he'll do it, maybe he'll buy back Bullaray stock. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll try to make a play for the rest of, uh, Vivendi that he doesn't own. Um, and so it's uh, yeah, he's going to have a lot of options, but they kind of all involve. I mean, he he's basically he's a pretty trustworthy capital allocator, I'd say like he's um, he's not afraid. What I like about one thing I like about him is he's he's not afraid to completely remake the business. Right. Like they've been in Africa for I mean, I don't know, like his company has been in Africa for a really long time. Uh, and he's not afraid to just sell it. He says, okay, 20 times EBIT, my stock is trading for like a single digit number. Like, thanks. Okay. Let's move on to the next thing. Let's, let's switch over to online music, the music business, you know? Um, that's interesting, but it strikes me right in that kind of situation, you sort of don't exactly know where the cash is going to go. And obviously, um, there's, it's not like an activist is going to show up, right? It's sort of a, a controlled company and you sort of have to align yourself with management. So if I think about situations like that, and um, as you mentioned, um, and you laid that out in your latest letter, sort of China, where um, there's kind of this obvious narrative and it may be, may be overdone, but these situations, it always strikes me like the, the timing and, and like the volatility is a little bit hard to handicap. And I'm curious, how do you construct a portfolio with those types of situations where you don't like, is that come through in, in sizing or how do you think about? Yeah, I mean, think about that. I think that for the most part, I mean, most businesses, the, the, the vast majority of um, businesses that are out there are never going to see an activist. Right. Like. I mean, and, and, and a lot of the large, a lot of like the larger, a lot of, a lot of like mega cap companies, like it, it would be almost impossible for there to be one. Right. Um, and so I think that if there, 
is questions about the uh you know if you have if you have questions about how reliable management is or how they think or whether they are good decision makers it's super important to have some mechanism for an activist to come in and uh and and, and shake things up um which pro- i mean which like i said probably means you can't inv- you can't invest in like half of the mega cap companies that are kind of that are not necessarily run that well because there's never going to be an actor i mean maybe maybe you get like a nelson pels in but i mean other than that like they're just too big um you have to kind of rely on like the existing structures of the the governance that there's like incentives to you know to better the company but i think with um with companies that are controlled uh or obviously in foreign markets where you don't necessarily have like legal avenues to pursue executives like i mean china's the famous example right like i spent a whole year shorting these chinese stocks that had come public in the u.s in like 2012 because we just woke up one day and realized that they were all frauds and there was nothing anyone could do about it (laughs) and that was the problem you couldn't you had no legal way to like reach into those um to physically reach into the country and do anything about them about them uh you know being like essentially made up companies um so yeah i'm very aware of that risk i think i think what what i try to do is in those situations just do a little more work on the uh you know who who's managing the company um and a little more thinking about that um like it i mean like if it's a if it's a US company with you know less than a hundred billion dollar market cap with no controlling shareholder, um, you can be a little more confident that if things really go off the rails, you can focus more on the business, right? Because if things really go off the rails from a management perspective, uh, or governance perspective, you you can kind of count you can I mean there were probably there's a well, it's not it's not that it's like likely that someone will come in and you know run an activist campaign but the 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 threat of that it looms right like every executive knows that if you're bad enough carl icon will come knock on your door right like like you can't you can't set yourself up for failure in that way and so even if it even if it's a very rare occurrence like at least you have that um backstop uh incentive for for management um but like if you're if you're in china there that really doesn't exist so like that that's one thing with us investing in Tencent Music, um, I, I think in one of my one of my write ups, I forget whether I put this in the letter or not, but I talked about how um, Tencent, the parent company, has like twenty times more money in their own minority investments in like Chinese companies, <laughs> um, and how that incentivizes them to be kind of treat minority shareholders well in their own entity like they've got five billion or i mean whatever it's less now in terms of market cap um you know maybe they got four billion of market cap invested in tencent music and they have a hundred billion in um uh meituan and jd and uh, jd or that they distributed that or pindodo and all these other ones um and so yeah the last thing they want to do is uh pave the you know is is demonstrate by example to how to treat your minority uh shareholders poorly and i think i think with tencent that like the thing like the um you know it, it i think the fact that they distributed the jd shares 
uh, I don't know if that's been completed yet, but the, just the fact that they were distributing them rather than, um, you know, just, just, I mean, because even if you, even if you, if you sell the shares in the open market and you just keep that cash and you just do something else with the cash that makes your company larger. Right. And like anytime the a company is, this is why you don't see gigantic special dividends in publicly traded companies that often, because you know, the larger your company is probably the more money you're going to get paid. Right. So like if you have five, if you have $20 billion of stock in some company and you can like take that money and just go just acquire something, you'll probably do that because if you, you otherwise you're going to be a lot smaller as a company, you'll probably get paid less. Um, but of course in private equity companies, they have large special dividends all the time. Right. Um, and, and in fact, actually I've seen people claim that like one of the benefits of having a private equity, like leveraged type structure is to, is to, um, instill discipline on management in terms of them kind of have, they have to use the cash flows that come in to pay, to pay down debt instead of just like building their empire. So I try to look for like little signs like that, that kind of demonstrate that I'm on the rights and, you know, I have made a good choice with the management team. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious, um, sort of going through your letters, I, I think you're, there's just like a lot of different interesting industries in there, right? Both on the long side and the short side, both from like, you know, real estate, consumer, like uh, the technology names. I'm like, how do you go about, like a firm showed up, um, how do you go about like wrapping your arms around like a new business model that you, you haven't encountered before, a new industry, or like figuring out where you should spend your time, right? Like what's, what is interesting? Because there's just obviously, like you're, you're still a small shop. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the, that's probably the hardest thing. I mean, I mean, of course, it's something that affects literally every person on earth, right? How to spend your time. Um, there's, there's, uh, there's no secret to it, but it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely, and it's especially hard in investing because, and as a small shop, I mean, you don't, there's no one telling me, oh, Hey, go do this or Hey, go, go, go read this, you know? So I, I, that's, I, I definitely struggle with, you know, constantly trying to think about, you know, how I should be spending my time. Um, for me, what I know how to do is I know how to follow the companies that we're invested in. That's obviously a priority and keeping tabs on, um, you know, keeping notes and uh, models on all those companies and some of their competitors usually. That's, that's a lot of work and a lot of time and a good number of times I've gotten ideas from like, okay, I'm following a competitor of my current company and then they did something or they merged with another company or, you know, um, and then, uh, and then I just have a list of, uh, of companies that I'm following and I'm just constantly, constantly, I mean, the way I kind of, the way I describe it is like, I I'm constantly updating my notes on all those companies until something just hits me over the head. Like, you know, I, I'm always trying to think about in my notes, like what I think the company might be worth. And I just try to, you know, so over time I'm going a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper and, you know, learning more and more about the company as I follow them over the, you know, months and years. And then if something really hits me over the head, like there's a change of the company or it's down 50% because of X, Y, Z, that's when I'll kind of go in and do a, a, a deeper dive and I'll start to, um, and a lot of times at that point, if I think it's, if I think we're probably going to end up buying it, I'll start writing. Um, and it's like, it's kind of just like to myself, although I, I do post them occasionally, I'll start writing like why we should buy it. 
And then sometimes that process also either I start writing and I'm like, you know what? I'm like looking at the words on this page and it's like, this is actually not that good of an idea. Like maybe, uh, maybe this is, you know, not that compelling or it'll create new avenues for research. Like I'll, I'll, I'll be like, you know what? I don't really know that much about um, this part of the business. Like, let me go, let me go look into this a little bit more. And so then I'll just go read, you know, more. I'll maybe try to talk to someone in that, industry or i'll just go read more about it or i'll find more earnings calls or transcripts or books about it or you know whatever the case may be so yeah that's not really a great answer it's uh, the hardest question is what to do with your time when no one's telling you what to do (laughs) but that's how i that's how i do it i know it's it's tricky what kind of things hit you over the head or like is is that like occurred recently what what falls into that category i mean the, the the chinese stocks have kind of hit me over the head um, although they've still, they still haven't, they're still going down. So, um, you know, maybe they're, they're still hitting me on the head in a bad way, <laughs> but I mean, the valuations of those, some of those companies, um, you know, when they're down 60, 70% and a lot of, and some of them haven't had that much change in the underlying business. Um, that's, that I think is starting to hit me over the head. I mean, um, in, uh, in late 2020, I decided to take like what, what hit me over the head in like late 2020 was like, you know what? It's actually not it's not the time to be 130 percent long. It's now that we got to like it's because it's just things have gone up so much. And um, and, you know, of course, it seems like but, but just by telling that story, because now the market's down, obviously, I'm it, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying we always make the right decision, but that at that time that kind of hit me over the head, like in, in mid, in mid to late in, or sorry, when I said 2020, I meant 2021. It's so like the end of 2021. I decided to, to, to take down the kind of gross long position. Cause they had, I mean, not only had the market gone up a lot, but even value stocks had, had come back a, a decent amount. Um, in, in late, in late 2020, um, it hit me over the head that I I just thought that a bunch like regional banks were just really cheap. I actually read a uh, a letter. Um, I think you I think I you might have had him on your podcast. Um, or no no maybe it was maybe it was the idea brunch that had him on. Yeah yeah so yeah Gator Capital yeah he I think is one of the smartest um, and super flexible thinker on financials financial stocks. Um, and I was reading through his letter about about regional banks and i was like just like this is a no a no-brainer and i mean so that's sometimes like i feel like for me sometimes i learn about a company follow it for years start to research it deeply feel like it's too hard come back to it later something changes the stock goes down something changes again and then maybe i buy it or maybe i never do um and then sometimes i read something in someone's quarterly report and I do like one week of work and I'm like yeah this is a good idea let's do this um which I think it's important to have that kind of flexibility I mean obviously you can get carried away with that like it, it could be a sign of hubris that you think like oh all of a sudden I can just recognize this great idea in like two seconds um but yeah that was a case where I was just like yeah this is such a good idea like what these these everyone is like the everyone is like everyone's going to pay back like people are going to come back 
to strip malls and they're going to go back to stores. Like this real estate is going to be fine. The real, actual real estate market only went down like 5% and then it just started booming, um, which is what most of their, their loans are backed by in these small banks. So I was just like that. that so that just hit me over the head. I mean, before that, like putting on a, a, a book of short positions and like and also in like late 2020 kind of hit me over the head. Um, but again, I mean, that was completely wrong for like six months. So, um, when, when I get hit over the head with an idea is not necessarily, uh, highly correlated with short term results for that specific idea. Although obviously, you know, over the long term, it's done. Okay. That, that is the value investors dilemma. And, and it, it does sound like a lot of beatings have been going on. So it's actually funny. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, cause I'm seeing in the background, there's this rowing machine. Right. And so I've been, I don't want to say obsessed, but like this big idea that's kind of going through my mind and I've been talking to friends about is this idea of longevity and resilience in the business and that there's a lot more to it than um, how to structure your portfolio and like, you know, how much exposure you take on or diversification or shorting, whatever. There's a lot of other things, whether it's in the business or, you know, physical health, mental health relationships, like there are a lot of things that can kind of derail you in investing and in life. And I think in, in many cases, you see famous investors whose career end coincides with either burnout or with bad decisions that occur when they're extremely stressed or under extreme pressure or just kind of sick of, of what they're doing. And, and you see people go out, of, like retire from the business um, at a low point be, because of that. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious and asking more and more people like how they think about that and what you like, how do you think about like longevity and like staying healthy when the, the yeah, job is I mean, pressure and always. So, so for me, um, I guess I'm lucky in a way that I just can't, I can't live without doing physical activity. <laughs> um, so I, I played tennis in college and I just, I'm used to just every single day. I mean, we, I would play every single day from the time I was 11 until I was 22. I played tennis every day for two hours. Um, so I don't, I mean, I don't like work out every single day anymore, um, but I can't go more than two or three days. And it, for me, it's like, uh, for me, I mean, it's, it's literally life or death, right? It's not even about the in investment stuff like it's life or death like if you don't if you're not if you're not like working out and staying in shape like not only are you not going to do well on investing you're going to be dead um and that is you know i i i try to tell people like i try to tell my wife like you and my wife is in really good shape but i try to get her to to lift some weights occasionally because i just think it'd be good for her overall you know mental and physical health and she'll and if she says like uh you know, oh, I don't have, I don't have time. Like, uh, you know, I'm super, and she is super busy. Um, but I'm like, you have 10 minutes. You have, you literally, you can't not have 10 minutes to, to, to lift some weights. Right. And it's going to help you feel better. It's going to help you sleep better. It's going to help your, your stamina. Like when you had a long day at work. Um, so yeah, I think all that stuff is, is super important. Um, and I don't see how, I mean, I think more and more people are kind of coming around to that, to that view that like, you know, how can you prioritize other things besides your physical health? Like, cause other, you won't, it, like you won't actually be able to prioritize those things in, in the proper way. Um, and I mean, of course, like things like relationships are a lot harder, obviously. Like, I mean, you can say that you're going to like 
prioritize your relationship with like your wife and kids or whatever but like that that is not so like the 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 rowing machine doesn't have a choice whether i prioritize it and like it we, we work well like i just have to go and i just can use it um like like you know whether someone gets along with their wife or, or, or husband or kids or whatever is like a little bit more of a difficult uh task i think um but but equally as important in terms of investing you won't you won't die probably if it doesn't work out like you will if you don't exercise but <laughs> um but yeah, it's I, I definitely think about those things because I mean, yeah, if you're if you're having problems elsewhere in your life, it's impossible to um it's impossible to to think about investing in a in a proper way. Um and uh I mean, which kind of honestly, like it's it's been a little tough to focus on investing given like the whole the whole situation in Ukraine with the, in, the invasion of Ukraine. Um, yeah, it just feels like, I think someone put on Twitter, like, it feels like such a luxury to be worried about like the impact on a portfolio. Um, so, you know, if it's, uh, I, 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 my kind of takeaway from that in, in terms of my life is, um, you know, besides like wanting to like donate to the Ukrainian army, which I just never thought I'd be, have, would have done. Uh, that's such a random crazy thing to have for me to do um is it just kind of puts in perspective how lucky we have it to be um you know sitting here and like 10 minutes ago my or well, i guess it's an hour ago an hour ago my biggest concern was like how to optimize the audio input on this like 200 dollars mic that i just got for this podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I think that's very well phrased in terms of it is kind of a luxury or one can be grateful and at the same time, obviously, try try to help, but it's you're, you're still sort of aware that, okay, you're far removed from from people who are like, suffering through through very real and like, like things that I like, I grew up in Germany, and it was always like, you know, like, the, the prospect of war or something like that just felt very, very remote. And it also like gives you the sense of a little bit of complacency, I guess, right? Like these these things that seem impossible are not actually impossible, and and can get very real. Much like I was very taken, very much taken by surprise by this, and it's like, yeah. And I mean, know. I'm I'm sitting here, fifteen miles from the White House, twenty miles, I think fifteen. So like, if and you're in, you're in New York, right? So, I mean, if this gets at really out of hand, we're probably, it's not going to, like, if, in the worst case scenario, it's not going to go well for us, I think, you know? Well, I mean, I, I that's an interesting question and, and probably... I actually don't know. I actually don't, don't yeah, I don't know. That, like, I'm, sure that, <laughs> I'm sure people have done whole podcasts on U.S. missile defense systems and whether Russia can strike us or not, I, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, I, it's concerning. Well, it's one of those things was like, if, if that happens... Right, like finding the the spot where you're not affected by that. Like I always think about it as like, okay, if if that happens, um, you know, even in the upside case, you're in a bunker somewhere on like some remote island without a dentist and without yeah. the internet. I'm like, this is either way. That's it's, right. It's gonna be really I, tough. Yeah, I heard someone say that they 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 joked with their mom that they located as close as possible to DC so that they didn't have to live in like the zombie apocalypse. They could just go out uh right straight away which is uh just crazy that that's like a, a joke that is um and not even really a joke anymore i mean that's like that's it's, 
crazy, wow. crazy times. Okay. Well, Evan, I, I really appreciate it um, that you took the time. I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm going to link to some of your, your letters, but in any event, like, please let people know where they can uh, find you, learn more about the firm. Yeah. Uh, thank you for having me. It was uh, my pleasure and it was a great conversation. Um, yeah, you can find me at, at Evan Tyndall on Twitter and buyroomcapital.com is our, our website and you can you know that we have a blog section and a, a CIO corner section that you could check out for some of our old all our old writing. Got it. Awesome. 